0: Shalom Aleichem, welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Seth Rogovoy. Seth is a pop culture critic, a regular on WAMC Public Radio, and the author of several books, including The Essential Klezmer, a best-selling guide to the evolution of klezmer, about the old world shtetluck to the new world nightclubs and concert stages, and Bob Dylan, prophet, mystic poet, which examines the life and songs of the Nobel Prize-winning rock poet through a Jewish lens. Seth also serves as the Artistic Director of the Yiddish Book Center's annual Yidstock, the Festival of New Yiddish Music. Welcome, Seth.
1: Thank you, Lisa. Great to be here.
0: Great to have you here. Um, I'll just say, uh, for those of our listeners uh, who missed last week's virtual program with you about Bob Dylan, um, they should go uh, out and get the book because it was a great, it was a really, really great program. Thank you so much. Um, and thank Thank you for everything. And I will also put in the, unfortunately we have to take out the word annual this year for Yidstock. So we miss, we miss seeing you here.
1: Yes. It's going to be really sad when that weekend rolls around and, uh, we're not going to be there, but you know, we're doing what we can with the virtual programming and, um, Hopefully, everything will be up and running again next year, and uh, and it'll be great.
0: As we like to say, uh, in twenty twenty one, next year in Amherst, yeah. So um, you were nice enough to accept my invitation to come on today to talk about, since we are home, and we're doing a lot of. I, I'm saying collectively, um, not the royal we, uh, are doing a lot of reading, watching, listening. And I figured, who better to ask about what's on your list, Seth? So um, I usually don't send out questions in advance, uh, as you're aware. But this time I did ask you to give a little thought to what your recommendations would be. And I'm very eager to hear what you have to say. And I know you did send me um, a cheat sheet, yes?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Okay. So I'm going to then toss out these and you can tell me the why of your um, choice. So in the category of music, you've got Bob Dylan's new album, which I am desperately eager
1: to hear your take on. Right, right. So in keeping with uh, last week's talk. And um, so Bob Dylan uh, released his uh, first album of new songs in um, eight years uh, in mid-July. It's called Rough and Ready, Rough and Rowdy Ways. And, you know, lots of people ask me what I think of it because given the fact that I've written about Dylan an awful lot. And, um, you know, in, while in some ways you might call me a Dylan fan, that doesn't mean that I just blindly think that everything he does is great. You know, for example, that previous album of original songs in 2012 called Tempest, you know, that's not at the top of my list or anywhere near the top of my list of uh, best Bob Dylan albums. It was like one or two songs, one I really loved, maybe a couple of others, but I had mixed feelings about that. And then over the last uh, eight years, he's released... Three or five, depending upon how you count them, albums of pre-rock pop standards, songs you know associated with Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett. And I had mixed feelings about those two. Um, I thought that some of it was very interesting, but you know, it's not what we go to Bob Dylan for in general. But I have no mixed feelings about the new album, Rough and Rowdy Ways." From top to bottom, I think this is a spectacular album. And you know, coming, coming at this point in his career, he's 79 years old. Um, had it not been for the pandemic, he would be out touring, as he has been pretty much nonstop since 1989 or something. He does uh, 100 shows or more a year. Um, so on this album, the, these new songs, 10 new songs, uh, the, the shortest of which is like six minutes, they're, they go on and, uh, um, and they're fantastic. The songwriting is amazing and consistent throughout the album. And in some cases, I think, ranks with some of his best efforts of his almost 60-year career at this point. He shows sparks of his uh, mid-60s fiery persona on some of the songs. There's one called Goodbye Jimmy Reed, which to me sounds like it could have been on Blonde on Blonde, his uh, landmark 1966 album. His voice, you know, given that he's 79 and given that he's uh, abused it over the years, as anybody who's, you know, singing for that long has, it sounds great. It hasn't sounded this good in decades. Um, the musical arrangements and the overall sound of the recording, you know, where obviously uh, a lot of care and, and thought went into this, which isn't always the case. With Dylan's albums, and this isn't a, a critique really, but he often Will make an album where he goes into the studio and basically just uses the studio as a place to make a live recording with his band, um, warts and all. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, and some great music has come out that way. But in this case, I think there was a lot of uh, thought and planning went into the arrangements so that you can You can really hear all the lyrics which you know sometimes people complain about I can't understand what he's saying you won't have that problem this time and the the music itself is beautiful it really serves the songs it's it's the proper background for for his uh, lyrics Um, plus it's got at least a handful of surprising Jewish references as you know I wrote a whole book about (laughs) the Jewish references in Bob Dylan songs, and it doesn't, it hasn't ended. Uh, In this one, he uh, mentions Anne Frank in passing. You know, he juxtaposes Anne Frank uh, in the lyrics with Indiana Jones, and there's been, I've seen a lot of uh, comments in, in, in reviews like, how does that make any sense? And if you think about it, Indiana Jones, when we first met that fictional character in the original Raiders of the Lost Ark, he was a Nazi hunter, so it makes total sense to juxtapose Anne Frank and Indiana Jones. It's also on this album. It's uh, what I believe only to be the second reference in song in lyrics to quote the Jews. He 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 used that term one more uh, one previous time, and um, and it uh, services again this time along with uh, some other groups that he mentions. So. I would recommend this new album to anybody who already likes Bob Dylan. If at this point you don't like Bob Dylan, then, you know, you're hopeless and you can just uh, pass it up. <laughs> well,
0: that's a, that was a hearty hearty endorsement. Um, I'm watching the Bob Dylan documentary, the Scorsese documentary, which um, I would toss in there as being interesting in terms of yes. getting which Dylan one, to open the, up.
1: Now, there were two. Which one are you watching? The... Uh, no direction home or Rolling Thunder review.
0: Uh, no direction home.
1: Yes, and it's I amazing. just re- I just rewatched that also uh, in the last couple of months, and it is po- possibly like the greatest documentary ever made about Bob Dylan. Even though it's you know rooted in a specific time, like a, just a year in his career, it really you get such a great. Picture of what he's really about, which uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to do. It's hard to pin him down given all the changes he's gone through and all the kind of mystifications he's done on himself. But yes, so I'm glad to hear that that you're enjoying that. And
0: yeah, uh, um, yeah, it's quite amazing. And um, I do want to give you time to get to the rest of yours because you've got a lot of really good stuff here. But I do recommend the documentary because I will say to get. Dylan to open up like that seemed to me absolutely incredible. Um, And it's a walk back in terms of musical influences. So next on the list, and we'll we'll try to move through this quickly
1: because we can get to them all, Um, the movie Once Were Brothers. So it's a kind of a companion to our discussion about Bob Dylan. It's a new documentary film called Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. It's a wonderful portrait of what I think was the greatest North American rock band of all time, which was simply called The Band. Mm -hmm. It's loosely based on guitarist and chief songwriter Robbie Robertson's excellent 2017 memoir, Testimony. The film tells the unlikely story of how these five musicians, four Canadians and one Arkansan, came to play together first as a backup band to an American rockabilly artist in Toronto named Ronnie Hawkins. Then they wound up as Bob Dylan's backup band for his notoriously controversial mid 1960s world tour when he went electric, which is what you're watching about in No Direction Home. And eventually they wind up as their own group, virtually inventing the genre of music that we now call Americana or roots rock. Mm-hmm. Listeners um, who may not know, may not know exactly who the band was. They were the group that did The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, which pretty much everybody knows. Joan Baez made it a big hit. And the song The Wait, which everybody knows, but unless you're a fan, you might know it as Take a Load Off Fanny, You Put the Load Right on Me. So the story that the film recounts is one of both triumph and tragedy, as is. So often the case, the group eventually fell apart due to infighting, mostly caused by drug and alcohol addiction, to the point that, as Robbie Robertson tells the story in the film, he was the only one who showed up to the recording studio when they were supposed to make their next album in 1977. So nobody, the rest of them just weren't interested. Now, as a particular side note, for our purposes, the film also deals briefly with Robbie Robertson's fascinating family background. He grew up thinking that a man named James Patrick Robertson was his father. When his mother, Dolly Robertson, who was a Mohawk raised on the Six Nations Reserve southwest of Toronto, when she had finally had enough of James Robertson's physical and emotional abuse. She sat down her son and explained that she was divorcing James. And by the way, James is not your natural father. Your biological father is a man named Alexander Klegerman who died in a roadside accident before Robbie was even born. She also told Robbie at that time that Klegerman was Jewish or as uh, Ronnie Hawkins says in the documentary, uh, Robbie's real dad was a Hebrew gangster. So Robbie was soon introduced to his father's family, including his brothers, Nadie and Maury Klegerman, who embraced him as their own and brought him into their world where they were prominent members of Toronto's Jewish underworld. As Robertson says in the film, they brought me into their world with tremendous love and affection. He would uh, do some errands for his uncles, and I put quotes around the word errands. Um, and he credited them with with helping him conquer the kind of closed-minded suburban mentality that he grew up in, where, like, the most ambitious uh, thing somebody would want to do from his high school was maybe to own their own bowling alley so that they could bowl for free all day. So (laughs) Robbie Robertson, he had um, other kinds of ambitions and he he credits his uncles. He said, (laughs) excuse me, they understand vision. They understand ambition. When I told them I had musical ambitions, they were like, rock and roll? You don't wanna be in furs and diamonds? And then they were like, oh, you mean show business. (laughs) <laughs> that was something that they could understand, and they got behind him, helped support him, and even got him some gigs in Toronto nightclubs, which they had some influence in, so that that's pretty funny anyway great right. documentary. it sounds like
0: yeah- de- yeah again it's called um once we're Brothers and definitely put it on the list yeah um Let's move on to books and what I'm going to do here Seth is I'm going to read out the ones that you've suggested and maybe we can focus on one just um given time constraints. So you've got on the list How to be an anti-racist, White Fragility, Richard Ford, and The Plague by Camus.
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> I guess Let's talk about The Plague by Albert Camus. Ah, thank you. (laughs) What's so interesting about reading this book now is that ever since it was published in 1947, you know, just a few years after World War II, it was read then and it's been read up until recently as some kind of allegory or a metaphor. It's about a North African, uh, French Algerian town, which, uh, falls victim to a plague. And it's always been thought of as a political book that the plague of the title is a metaphor for Nazism or racism or terrorism or the like. But the fact is that Albert Camus deeply researched historical accounts of life during plagues going back to the Middle Ages. And what is uncanny reading it today is about how well Camus, who never actually lived through a pandemic himself, how perfectly he captures the feeling of living through one, which we all know exactly what that's like. Um, You might ask, well then, why should we bother reading it if we're living it? And the answer is that, even though Camus tells us a very specific detailed story, The main characters in the book are very thoughtful people who talk a lot about what they're going through and they don't all agree about the meaning of it. There's the bureaucrats and the city officials and military personnel, police, journalists, religious leaders, and medical personnel among others are are the main characters in the book. And what results does indeed transcend the everyday nature of life during pandemic. to explore, as Camus does in all of his writing, both his fiction and nonfiction, what it means to be human in a life and world of utter unpredictability, of seemingly natural whim. In other words, under the conditions that we, or he, his fellow existentialists and adherents, call the absurd, that everything in our world, the way we live, is contingent. And that that more than anything, is what I think we have or will come away from this experience with this newfound sense of contingency and absurdity. You could find that depressing or pessimistic, but personally, Mm -hmm. I find there's a power, an individual power in this kind of positive pessimism, which is what I call it. Um, So it's pretty amazing to, to go back and read Camus on life during a pandemic
0: and then onto the category of tv uh we've got nordic noir the plot against america babylon berlin i know this much is true i so want to ask you a few questions about (laughs) can may i do i get that um ability to pick which one i want to ask you about i think you should okay all right thank you um well first i would say in the same vein as the play watching the plot against America was fascinating to watch right now. Um, And then I'll let that go. But Babylon, Berlin. Wait, before we leave the plot
1: against America, just one little note about it. Um, Uh Yidstock fans, people who've been to Yidstock at the Yiddish Book Center should look closely in the first few episodes of the plot against America for Appearances by our very own Eleanor Risa, who we know as a Yiddish singer, but she's actually an actress, and she has a small but significant role in the uh, first three episodes of uh, *The Plot Against America*.
0: And and I will say there was much excitement at the Newman household when we noted that. Um, <laughs> and and interesting because if I if I had a lot of time to expand on it, I think her role is fascinating because she's the bridge. Mm. And, and while it's a small role, I think it's very essential in threading together that narrative. But I couldn't have we'll said talk it better
1: myself. Things. Thank you.
0: No, <laughs> um, but next time we're together, we can talk about that over, you know, over wine here at the center whenever we're back together. Um, Babylon Berlin. Let's talk about that because
1: I have to tell you, I could not figure that out at all. Mm, interesting. Now, here's my take on it, and I and I, I will say this: out I, that I, I watched the first first and second episode maybe several years ago, and then I kind of dropped it. And I picked it back up again recently, and I was transfixed. You know, it's on on a very basic level, it's a detective show, a murder mystery, um, but it takes a wide vertical and horizontal view of late Weimar Germany. And in a way that, you know, uh, in, in a bizarre way, it reminds me of the American TV show, The Wire, which of course has no relation to it um, subject wise, but in its in its view from like the very top, from the, you know the 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 hidden chambers of the of the top leaders of Weimar Germany down to the hovels and apartments of the poorest people in Berlin you see it all you see life in Weimar Germany from top to bottom from left to right literally politically and um and and it's all inextricably intertwined which is or, you know, artistically, creatively, how they do it. So that's fascinating to me. And, you know, while the the threat of Hitler and the Nazis plays only a very small part in the series, it's really much more about Weimar, which which I didn't know a lot about, so I learned a lot. It filled in a gap. I mean, unfortunately, I know a lot because I read a lot about Hitler and the Nazis. But here, it provides you the context to understanding the where that came out of Um, and I happen to have combined this just not on purpose totally coincidentally I read a new book called Hitler's First Hundred Days by historian Peter Fritsch so it was almost like going from Babylon Berlin to that old you know even though Babylon Berlin is a fictional story it's obviously based on on real history and and it gives it gives you quite a picture of uh, that time in Germany. So I don't know if that yeah. helps you out at all, or if it makes it sound more it's, compelling. It's
0: no i think it's actually the the whole idea of the construct of being both vertical and horizontal um mm. the old idea behind the lotus software program um and those <laughs> intersections is true um it's it's lavishly produced i mean whoa the budget for that must have been just astronomical so absolutely you, it, yeah. yeah i mean it, it, yeah it deposits the viewer within the frame um there's no doubt about that you are sort of like within it but it's so hard to untangle it um although towards the end, as you say, it was apparent that you were watching two different sides there everybody had there were a lot of backstories um mm. that mm-hmm. yeah that explained I guess all of what was going on in those early days um so these are great um and I'm just thinking if we have time for maybe um one more um. Is there one on the list that I've missed that you would like to sure. whack well, poetic how about? about?
1: You, th- there's a pretty new series um, streaming on cable called I Know This Much Is True. And it stars Mark Ruffalo. You know, who's a great actor. He plays identical twins. Now, also, let me say that the cast also includes Rosie O'Donnell Katherine Hahn, Juliet Lewis and Archie Panjabi. So it's an amazing cast. It's a heartbreaking family drama centered around two identical twin brothers, both of whom are played by Mark Ruffalo and you know there are scenes <laughs> where both these brothers are in the same scene. Now, you know, for the first few episodes, you're just like, "Wait a minute. How did they do this?" And what's amazing is even though they're identical twin brothers, they're so different uh one of the brothers is a paranoid schizophrenic um, and uh so and one of them is not and and Mark Ruffalo plays them you know i mean they even even though he he is the same one, and they are identical twins, you know everything about them they stand differently, they talk differently their their faces contort differently so you get over that after the first few episodes and then you kind of forget and you are watching it and you just these are two different brothers and and you and you no longer are uh conscious that Mark Ruffalo is somehow playing them in the same scene at the same time um so uh it's it's like I say it's a it's an intense family drama it's it's um, both loving and tragic. Uh, so um, I highly recommend it and an amazing cast, as I said.
0: Great. So I'll do a really quick recap. Um, we have thumbs up for Bob Dylan's new album. We should all check out Once We're Brothers. Books, How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility, along with The Plague and Nordic Noir, sorry, Nordic Noir. The plot against America, Babylon Berlin, and I know this much is true. And I know you're reading, watching, and listening to much else. Um, so I thank you for taking time to share these, and it gives us something to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. And then we may have to come back and ask for a second round of recommendations if you're available for that.
1: That'll be fun. Look forward to it.
0: Great. Thanks, Seth. Um, And thanks for your insights and your encouragement in terms of getting me to watch, listen, uh, and read a little bit of stuff that I otherwise wouldn't have known about. And I hope that's true for our listeners. Um, So thanks again. And we will talk soon. Stay well. Great. You too, Lisa.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Yep. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Bleichfeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.